Welcome everyone uh, to our Greenhouse Book Talk, uh, the first one of our fall 2020 semester. And we're very excited to welcome Emily Wanderer today. Emily is an assistant professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Pittsburgh. And she will be uh, talking about her first book, um, which The Life of a Pest. Uh, which is an anthropological study on the politics of nature in Mexico, examining different species, how they're protected or not. Um, so we're very happy to welcome Emily. So we'll give it over to you. Great. Uh, thank you so much to Dolly and Finn Arna for having me present as part of this wonderful series. Um, as a viewer of previous book talks, it's been a really great way to kind of uh, get an introduction to so many fantastic works in the environmental humanities that have come out recently. So I found it to be really invigorating and I'm really happy to participate. I'm very happy to talk today about my book, uh, The Life of a Pest, which was published this spring by the University of California Press. Um, and so this book, I'm going to talk a little bit about kind of like the general argument, the origins of the book, and then read a brief excerpt to give you kind of like a, a sense of it. Um, and it's a work in the anthropology of science. Um, and in it, I am examining how people, primarily in this case scientists, think about threats to life forms, both human and non-human um, in Mexico. So how they think about what species are most at risk, which ones deserve protection, and what threatens them. And as an anthropologist, one of the things that I was particularly interested in as I was doing this research was in looking at how culture and history inform the thinking and work of scientists in this area. So how people were thinking about nature and culture and about how history and politics had shaped biology um, from the organismal level to the ecosystemic um, in ways that are really consequential. So I started this research in 2009, which was in a moment that echoes our current one in certain ways. That is, it was in the midst of an outbreak of infectious disease. Um, and I don't know how many people kind of like remember this, but uh, the disease in 2009 was H1N1 influenza. Um, and in June of that year, the WHO declared it was a global pandemic. Um, and while the outbreak of H1N1 influenza was certainly much smaller in scale than the COVID outbreak, it was still a really major event. Um, there were uh, ultimately around half a million lab confirmed cases of H1N1, although the suspected number of cases is many multiples of that. So a, a significant outbreak. And it was one that emerged from Mexico um, where it immediately became a really significant issue. The government shut down large gatherings. Uh, there were restrictions on travel. Uh, people were uh, really concerned about it. Um, so while I was doing fieldwork in Mexico in the aftermath of this outbreak, lots of people were talking about how to protect life, um, about biosecurity. This was something that people were thinking about. It was really of immediate concern. Um, what, so people were talking about what biosecurity meant, how to achieve it, um, what were threats, what needed to be protected. 
And I think this is a really common story in anthropological fieldwork, but uh, I went into the field with certain ideas about what biosecurity was, and people were extremely happy to correct my misconceptions. Um, so I had come to this research uh, from a biodefense research center in the U.S. Um, I had been working at this uh, research center, which was composed of scientists who were doing work in microbiology and immunology um, for biodefense. Um, and it had been funded in the aftermath of there were some bioterror attacks in the US in 2001, um, anthrax attacks. And so there was all this government funding for biosecurity research. And so this work at this biodefense research center really shaped my understanding of what biosecurity was. Um, and in microbiological and public policy and even anthropological circles in the US, when people were talking about biosecurity, they tended to be talking about uh, human health, infectious disease, and particularly intentionally introduced disease. So that really kind of like shaped my understanding and definition. And when I went to Mexico, when I talked with people about biosecurity, um, I referred to the recent epidemic and human disease. Um, and my interlocutors in Mexico were very happy to correct me, to say that wasn't what bioseguridad meant in Mexico. Um, and they defined it much more broadly as thinking about life beyond the human. So it's not just about protecting human life from various threats, but thinking about non-human life as well. Um, and the term bioseguridad is used in relation to health, ecology, and agriculture. Um, so examples of biosecurity practices that would fall under this kind of umbrella include government initiatives to monitor the health of travelers and quarantine the sick, something that is obviously like particularly salient now, um, but other things like screening migratory birds for viruses. That's something that can have implications for human health as well, um, but also things like eradicating invasive species really important biosecurity measure, um, regulating the use of biotechnology, including transgenic organisms, was also seen as really important. And I found that the common thread connecting these practices is the concern with identifying and controlling species out of place. So these biosecurity practices require scientists to establish which life forms belong and which are alien, um, which practices enable good native life forms to flourish, um, and which uh, facilitate the spread of dangerous organisms, dangerous alien species. Um, so scientists working on uh, these biosecurity practices in Mexico work to define native life forms, um, to establish what is unique about Mexican biology. Um, and they made claims about how biology had been shaped by history, culture, um, and environment. So one of the questions that I went to the field with was, you know, if people are thinking about security, about how to protect life, how do they determine what life needs protection? And what does that tell us about how they think about nature and culture? Um, and so I was really guided by these conversations as I structured my fieldwork. Um, the kind of choices I made in fieldwork came out of these conversations with scientists. And it ultimately ended up doing fieldwork with three different groups of scientists. So scientists who were working in high security labs, um, studying uh, emerging infectious diseases, scientists who were um, 
working on conservation projects to eradicate invasive species, and then also with a group of ecologists who are employed by the federal government to regulate genetically modified organisms. So really trying to think kind of like broadly about these practices. Um, and in my field work, I found myself investigating not only human lives, but also kind of like thinking about all these animal and plant lives. So uh, Judas goats, which I'll talk a little bit more about when I read the excerpt, um, axolotl salamanders in Mexico City, um, transgenic maize, um, and, you know, viral life forms all became part of this research project alongside the human actors. Um, and one thing that I wanted to do in bringing together um, this really kind of like diverse assortment of uh, interlocutors and uh, actors and research sites was to show how scientists were really thinking about biopolitics and biosecurity beyond the human um, and encompassing microbial, animal, and plant worlds in these projects. Um, and what I found was that while these case studies illustrate, you know, really quite divergent projects of biosecurity, um, they all entail thinking about the entanglement of human and non-human life forms um, and making judgments about kind of like how people, animals, and plants have really mutually produced one another over time. Um, and what I found was that these projects tell us something about how scientists think about nature in Mexico. And rather than idealizing nature as something pure or separate from humans, these biosecurity practices become an important place in which the entanglement of human life, politics, and nature are made visible and acted upon. Um, and this is certainly not kind of like a novel phenomenon in Mexico, but instead draws on this long history of, of understanding nature as not something pristine and separate from culture, but as something that is like deeply interconnected. Um, and you can see that a lot in the way people talk about and think about maize as something that is, you know, uh, produced by humans and also shaping human culture in a really important way. Um, let's see. So in terms of things like conservation, scientists were really concerned with not you know, just the animals or ecosystems in question. So it wasn't about kind of like, uh, how can we restore this particular animal life form to a place? But instead they were really committed to preserving kind of like particular human social arrangements that uh, existed in particular places. And so they prioritized uh, these things as highly as um, protecting animal species. Um, so on islands in the Pacific where I did research, this meant protecting fishing cooperatives, um, which are uh, forms of social and economic organization that have roots back to the Mexican Revolution, um, and which the scientists that I worked with uh, thought were really important because they produced more equitable communities than other industries that might take their place, particularly tourism, which you know, favors people with lots of access to capital and tends to produce more inequitable societies. So they were saying like, you know, we want to protect you know, the animal life forms in this place, but not at the expense of kind of like these social arrangements. 
Um, it meant that in places like Xochimilco in Mexico City, where scientists were working to protect an endangered axolotl salamander, um, part of protecting the salamander meant also kind of revitalizing historical forms of agriculture. Um, so thinking human and non-human lives together rather than thinking in terms of wildlife conservation as something separate. Um, and I want to read a bit from the book now. Um, and this is one of the chapters I'm reading from uh, the second chapter. Uh, it's about conservation work on Isla Guadalupe. Uh, Isla Guadalupe is the westernmost part of the Mexican nation. It's an island in the Pacific. It's quite remote from the mainland. It takes about a day by boat to get there. Um, and so I went there with an NGO that has done work there for a long time, for um, uh, about 20 years. They've been working on projects of island conservation and ecosystem restoration, um, particularly doing invasive species eradication. And, you know, while I was looking at the work that they were doing on one island, the director of the NGO is really, um, you know, he says that it's uh, really important. Uh, it's more than just the island. Um, they look at it as like an experiment for kind of like how these things might be done in other places as well. So it could give you a basis, a new basis for perspective on the mainland as well. So, you know, an island is a place where you can do things. Um, more easily because it's a small contained area, but it also becomes this kind of like experimental project that could extend to life elsewhere. Um, okay, so in addition to uh, some important points, so in, in addition to the work of the NGO, the island is also home to a fishing cooperative, um, which has been there for a long time. And it was historically the location of a penal colony as well, although that is long gone. Um, and it is also home to a lot of invasive mammals, particularly uh, quite, or it was home to a quite damaging population of goats that was left there by hunters of marine mammals. Um, so people came to hunt whales, sea otters, and seals. And in order to turn Guadalupe into a productive kind of refreshment station, they left a couple of goats there, which multiplied over the years. Um, one naturalist described the resulting populations as vast skirmishing armies of goats, which I like because it, uh, you know, really captures just kind of like the quantity of goat life that ended up on Guadalupe. Okay, so I'm going to read an excerpt from the text, and I just want to, here's the one. All right. In 1919, British naturalist Frederick W. Jones was mesmerized by the unloading of several hundred wild goats onto the municipal pier at San Diego. Hoisted by their horns from the deck of the grime, each bunch of cud chewers presented a sorry spectacle as they dangled in midair with no apparent destination or clue on which to base hope for a much needed relief and their bulging lassy eyes seemed about ready to burst from their sockets. Intrigued by the dramatic arrival of the goats, Jones tracked them to their origin point on Isla Guadalupe, where he said, following the precedent of Adam and Eve, after many years, Billy and Nanny Goat are said to have settled on Guadalupe Island and their descendants of Billies and Nannies through many generations have in all probability numbered into the millions by this time. So at this time, before the development of the penal colony, goat herds were making systematic use of the goats trapping them in corrals when they came to drink from the island spring 
and shipping them to San Diego, where they would be sent on to slaughterhouses and meatpacking companies. Guadalupe and its sparse vegetation were being made productive resources as a feedlot for wild goats. Jones found the masses of goats to be, the to be for the most part indistinguishable, with the exception of one noteworthy goat named Monte Cristo, who had once been corralled by the herders, but left from a San Diego bound boat and swam back to Guadalupe, where he devoted his, quote, career to the furtherance of the highest interests of his fellow goats, end quote. A sociable animal, he thwarted the efforts of the herding gangs, marshaling the other goats, watching for the appearance of boats, and keeping goats away from the spring where they might be trapped, until he was finally captured himself. Jones admiringly wrote that even in captivity, quote, he remained obdurate and still possessed his indomitable will, end quote. Jones asserted that in his photograph, Monte Cristo appears quite resigned, although were his inner consciousness exposed and expression given to his thoughts, there might be revealed the words made immortal by our old friend, Patrick Henry, give me liberty or give me death. So Monte Cristo's behavior, as fanciful as Jones' narrative of it was, is indicative of the characteristics of goat sociality and agency that became important for Hesse. Um, Hesse is the NGO that I was working with. So while Monte Cristo was a hero for Jones, rescuing his fellow goats, by 2004, Hesse would seek to use the very kind of goat sociality that Monte Cristo demonstrated against the goats themselves. In June of that year, Hesse began an eradication project, an effort to eliminate every goat from Guadalupe so that native life forms would regenerate. Mammals are the most frequent targets of eradication efforts internationally and are often thought to be the primary causes of extinction and ecosystem changes on islands. For island conservationists, the goats were no longer heroes, nor were they useful sources of food. Instead, they were invasive species in need of eradication. As the island began to be seen as an important repository of biodiversity and a site of remarkable natural beauty, the economic and food value of the goats lessened in significance. Recuperating the native plant and bird populations of Guadalupe for their aesthetic, ecological, and genetic value became more important than making use of the island as grazing land for goats. Shifting priorities in Mexico changed the way that people framed and understood the landscape and determined the fate of the goats. Um, so, and now I'm going to talk about how one of the scientists kind of interacted with the goats. Um, on an early reconnaissance trip, Adriana followed Jose Antonio, a professional hunter who worked for Hesse for many years as he tracked goats on Guadalupe. Back then there were still goats, many goats, she said. So he placed traps and I went with him and watched how he placed them. I started to get interested in the knowledge you have to have of the animal that you're eventually going to eradicate to know how to control them. Learning about the goats was key to developing effective eradication strategies, strategies that would make use of goat behavior in order to eliminate them. In order to kill, they had to understand the goats, know how they lived, where they went, what their behaviors were. And ultimately, they found that they could not ever sufficiently know or track the goats well enough to hunt them all. Goats know things that we do not. They can sense each other and locate each other more efficiently than humans ever could. So because of these challenges and kind of like uh, knowing what goats know and knowing how goats act, um, Hesse ultimately used a technique known as the Judas goat in order to eradicate them. This is where a goat is captured, sterilized, and radio tagged, and then released into the field so that hunters can follow that goat as it finds its fellow goats, um, which it can do much more effectively than any human can do. Um, so once it finds the, the hiding goats, 
those goats are killed, the Judas goat is again released to go find other goats. Um, and I chose this excerpt because I wanted to highlight, you know, how scientific and biosecurity practices, you know, whatever they are, really have to grapple with the material reality of these animal lives. Um, of thinking about different animal species, how they act, how to deal with them, and sometimes even with individual animals end up becoming important characters. So you have like a, a noteworthy goat like Monte Cristo, um, and in the Judas Goat Project, there were always kind of individual goats that would become well-known as like particularly useful or particularly difficult. Um, and so I really like thinking about the individual animals as actors and characters in these stories and kind of trying to grapple with that, you know, reality. Um, and just kind of like thinking about how, you know, when people write about invasive species projects, often it is in terms of kind of like this war or just kind of like thinking in terms of eradication and destruction of animals. But in fact, in the projects themselves, there are these many moments where it's more about kind of like, uh, just like these really complex interactions with scientists that involve care and uh, interest and knowledge and learning. Um, so before it is even possible to think about eradicating a species, you have to, ha you have to care for the animals um, to learn about them, engage with them, interact with them, and develop relationships. And so I think that kind of looking at science and practice gives us this sense of um, the complexity of these relationships. Um, I guess I'll, I'll open it up for questions now. It's, it's hard to kind of think about the whole book in a 15-minute talk, but I tried to give a, a little sense of it. That's great, thank you. Um, so we'll open up now for questions and, uh, and comments. So the chat is open. Uh, and while people uh, try to come up with some good questions, I just want to ask then, I think perhaps an obvious question then considering the times we're in, but since you described, uh, I mean, quite interesting ways, your observations doing field work after a pandemic do you see parallels now? Do you see differences? So, you know, the one thing that absolutely came out in my field work talking about H1N1 was that, and uh, the scientists that I was studying or working with were studying not only H1N1, but other infectious diseases as well. You know, the thing that really came across was that there's never just one pandemic. Um, you know, people are experiencing different people are experiencing different uh, pandemics, different diseases in you know, different ways. Um, so for example, the scientists that I worked with who were studying HIV, um, so I was working at this uh, National Institute for Respiratory Disease and they had this uh, really excellent HIV clinic because a lot of patients who come in with respiratory ailments, particularly pneumonias, end up turning out to be co-infected with HIV. So they were studying HIV and they said, you know, actually HIV in Mexico is different from other places. Um, we have like a political social history of the introduction of antiretroviral therapies, which came at a later time than they started to be used in a widespread way in the US and with higher potency regimes. So this kind of uh, political history of access to medication has ultimately produced a different epidemic if we study the genomics 
of HIV in Mexico, we see that there are different resistance mutations in the US. So we need to think about kind of like, um, you know, just really thinking about this as different diseases in different places based on histories of exposure. So I think that, um, you know, we see in many ways uh, the same thing with COVID. It's not the same pandemic in different places. I think what you're experiencing in Norway is quite different than what we're experiencing in the U.S. Um, and also, you know, I, this is just the same with every outbreak of infectious disease, I, I think. But the way that people kind of like racialized risk and, you know, tried to locate risk in uh, different bodies, trying to say like, oh, you know, uh, Mexican people are more likely to be carrying this disease and we can, if we shut down travel, um, we'll be able to kind of like stop the spread of disease and it wasn't effective then and isn't effective now. Yeah, thank you. Well, yeah, I had a question. Um, well, I had a couple of questions, but I'll pick one for now, um, which was about leading from, from that discussion to what makes the Mexican scientists different or the same as their international counterparts here. So did you find that people, were, were there people internationally, because I would assume many of the organizations, NGOs, you know, are, can be large, they can have international people who work there. Did they think of biosecurity differently uh, than Mexicans themselves? And why do you think that was? So all the scientists that I worked with were very, um, you know, cosmopolitan, worked in many places, um, had lots of published um, kind of like outside of Mexico and worked with scientists from other places. So for like the invasive species eradication, lots of work with scientists from New Zealand, which is lots of kind of like uh, well-developed um, invasive species and biosecurity practices. At the same time, I would say that there were often kind of like uh, conflicts and differences in values and approaches. So for example, on Guadalupe, the American scientists that came in and were like, you know, working on the island as well said, oh, we could bring the sea otter back if we just got rid of this fishing cooperative. Um, that would be so great. Like if we can extend the sea otter and return the sea otter to where it used to live, that would be, that would be wonderful. And um, the director of the of HESI, the NGO, the Mexican NGO said that, you know, that's, that's not it for us. Like this, you know, we don't place the value of the sea otter as higher than the fishing cooperative. Um, and for us, it's about nature being used. Um, and so thinking not in terms of like wilderness conservation, but thinking about how can we kind of like art articulate forms of human labor and life that correspond with animal and plant worlds that we want to see. Good. So we have a question here in the chat and from, from uh, Rotsa. So, I mean, she says you addressed the question uh, about the difference between practice and well, policy and uh, conservation policy as being different then. So 
yeah so thinking about i guess where where that might go is to think so so are did you find that the scientists had a different idea of policy than policy on the books so did they try to do things um outside of the system or were they working in particular political systems and did you see any difference across regions i know is is Mm. uh one of her questions too so were there differences of, of guadalupe versus mexico city in their approach to biosecurity so that is a a good question and you know i worked primarily with one organization and i would say with it's an, it's an organization that's based in Ensenada, but is working nationally. So they were working on islands, like, you know, all around Mexico. And I went with them to um, not only Guadalupe, but other islands in the Pacific and in the Gulf of Mexico. And I would say that, you know, their work was pretty consistent throughout the nation. Um, but that isn't to say that it wouldn't vary region to region. Um, you know, especially if I were looking at another organization. And this NGO work was not part of the government, but did work quite closely. And, you know, the work would not have been possible without um, the coordination with the federal government, particularly the Navy, which was really important in kind of like providing logistical support. Um, And they also pointed to that relationship with the Navy as evidence of kind of like, you know, this is um, something that, you know, the government values. Um. Yep. So we have another question in chat. So just to repeat, you don't have to uh, write out a question if you want to ask it yourself. But I'll just read this one then from, from Joshua. So uh, you talk about the office as a third space for producing biosecurity. And could you talk a bit more about the office in terms of policymaking and implementation from a more than human perspective? So um, this was particularly uh, in my chapters about um, uh, the working on kind of uh, regulating the use of transgenic organisms, particularly maize. And I was really interested in how much of that work was kind of like being done in an office. So the, this was at the National Institute of Ecology. Um, they had a laboratory where they were doing research, but also a lot of this became um, kind of like, uh, it was going through this process of permitting, which went through an office um, in which a lot of it was about kind of like the construction of forms and um, computer programs that would make risk and kind of like different elements of the ecosystem visible or not visible in different ways. Um, And so uh, I was interested in the ways in which kind of like the forms that they constructed um, would, uh, you know, pay attention to certain elements of the ecosystem but also kind of enabled other elements to become less visible. And so thinking about uh, how does the office make things visible or harder to see. Okay, so we have another question in the chat, we'll do. So um, next to the goats have been moved by humans. You mentioned a few other types of animals that moved by themselves, for instance, migratory birds. 
Did you see any differences in the social cultural entanglements with animals you observed related to the different types of histories with them? So it's a question from Simona. Yeah, so thinking about um, bird life. So I don't think I, so birds tended to be kind of like the species that were being protected here. Um, and so while the goats were moved by other people and transported to other places that they then became invasive, eradicating goats was about kind of like making space for bird life um, and kind of like restoring the environment there so that it would be kind of like hospitable to birds. And there were tons of like really interesting projects around kind of like uh, attracting birds back to places where they used to have been or where they used to be. So um, constructing these uh, fake bird colonies, uh, playing recordings of bird sounds, um, putting out decoy birds, thinking about how to make a place look hospitable for birds if they weren't accustomed to going there. Um, so there was a lot of intensive labor to kind of like try to bring these, to get these animals, not, not to, cause you can't really move a bird. You have to get them to like come by or come by themselves. So thinking about how to make a space attractive to birds and how to, how to draw them in. Um, I, I had another question. Um, and that was, you know, this, it's such an interesting project to think about the way these scientists envision the animal and the and their relationship to it um, and the plants and the microbe right not just animals um, I was wondering about their emotions attached to that since I just had a book out where I was looking at recovery and and restoration projects and how did your informants feel about what they were doing were, were they motivated in a particular way by by emotions at all yeah, so the emotional component, I think, was extremely important and also really complicated um, because people get into um, conservation, or at least the people that I talked with, because they care about animals, they care about plants, they care about non-human life forms. And so, um, you know, a lot of the scientists were vegetarians, were like thinking about, you know, animal life as something that they were there to help. And so these projects force you to kind of like have these conflicting uh, emotions in which you are, um, you have to kind of like think beyond caring for individual animals to say like, well, I'm caring for the ecosystem as a whole. So I'm gonna have to do this thing that is uncomfortable and that I don't want to do, which is, you know, like uh, the Judas goats or something of that nature. Um, we were on Guadalupe, they were doing this experiment to kind of like understand the ways that mice, the population of uh, mice varied over time, depending on, you know, the amount of rain and kind of like the amount of uh, vegetation. Um, so looking at changes in mouse population over time. Mice were another invasive species. Um, they were detrimental to the bird population because they ate the eggs. So they were doing this study. And 
you know, mice are thought of as vermin, they were an invasive species, uh, you know, they weren't supposed to be there. And yet as we were doing this project, which required us to capture the mice and then release them, we started to develop this kind of affection for the mice. Um, we would give them names, we would recognize them. Um, when some of the mice got too cold, um, one person put them in her hat and made a little incubator to like revive them. So there are these like, you know, you're caring for things in order to ultimately hopefully eradicate them. And, you know, I think it requires scientists to think about kind of like, you're like, yes, I care about animals, but what I care about more is kind of like this ecosystem as a whole. Mm -hmm. So do we have any other questions? Well, yeah. I, I guess one of the things that I thought was really striking about the book is the cover and your axol, and I mean, I love axols. <laughs> I think they're so cool. Um, but I was wondering what charisma had to do with these things. Uh, I mean, especially since also you picked mice. Uh, so, so maize having a, a, a cultural uh, component as well as, you know, just, oh, something you eat. It's, it's so ingrained in uh, Mexican culture. Um, so in, in that sense, it's also charismatic, the way that an axolotl is charismatic. So could you say something about that? Um, yeah, and I think even like visually maze, it can be like quite stunning in that. I think really gives it that charisma. Um, so, you know, I think these charismatic animals can be both useful and challenging for scientists to deal with because sometimes you have an animal like a goat, which actually is quite charismatic and people, you know, had a affection for and interest in, and you have to kind of like work against that charisma to say like, actually we have to get rid of them to protect this much less charismatic, you know, pine tree. Um, uh, but yeah, so the, the axolotl has tremendous charisma. And I think that um, one of the chapters I talk about uh, a project to produce a refuge for it. And I think kind of like the huge appeal of the animal and its importance culturally enables this larger project that is about kind of like restoring agriculture. So in this place, like the animal life makes possible kind of like these human practices. Um, mm -hmm. So Rossi had another question. To what extent did tourism play in these animal studies? Like turtle tourism, Cancun, shark cage diving in Isla de Guadalupe, food tourism with corn, etc. Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, so I think that like the NGO that I, the HESI really saw themselves as kind of like in opposition to tourism. So this was not something that they were doing to make the island good for tourists because of kind of like the destructive qualities of tourism. Um, and I think that in terms of thinking of like food tourism with corn, um, one thing that people do talk about is kind of like uh, longstanding taste memories being important for kind of like uh, encouraging or calling for the continuation of historical forms of agriculture and planting kind of like traditional um, 
land races of maize. And I don't think that that is something that really you get with tourism because that is a, a sense that you get from having lived in a place a long time and being like, this is the maize that I ate when I was a child. So when you come in, you know, I came in um, not having that kind of like personal sense memory of what things tasted like. And uh, I would be like, oh, these tortillas are so good. And people would be like, no, these are terrible. <laughs> like, <laughs> they used to be so much better. Um, and so I think that like tourism doesn't actually provide the kind of like, um, tourists don't have that longstanding sense of what things used to be that is, is necessary to kind of like underwrite biosecurity practices or the protection of particular crops. Mm -hmm. Any final questions? Yeah, here's another one. So Joshua again. So I think you talk about potentiality in reference to axolotls in one of your articles. Do you think there's a future of exploiting the potentiality of non-humans in order to create or adapt species and ecosystems to environmental change? Yeah, this is a, a great question and something that I'm hoping to explore more in future work. Um, because uh, for people who aren't familiar with the axolotl, it is this incredible animal that has these amazing powers of regeneration. So you can um, cut off a limb, uh, it can regenerate and it will regenerate, it will regenerate central nervous system, it will regenerate heart tissue, it will regenerate basically any part of its body it can regenerate. So it's this incredibly um, flexible kind of like biological system. And so while in its native habitat, which is a small neighborhood in Mexico City, it has become quite endangered. Um, there are very few axolotls left in the wild. Um, that doesn't mean that there are very few axolotls left in the world. There are many axolotls proliferating throughout the laboratories of scientists who are using it as a model organism to understand kind of like, oh, what, what makes regeneration possible? So could this kind of biological potentiality, I guess, be understood in the, the laboratory in order to um, produce more flexible ecosystems? I'm, I'm really skeptical of that. Um, I think that, well, I think it's ironic that this, the axolotl is seen as so kind of like flexible and with so much potential in the laboratory because it really you know with in the wild it is able to exist within this really kind of narrow range of conditions um, so it becomes flexible in one context but that doesn't mean that it has that same kind of flexibility or adaptability in in the wild um, but that's something that I really want to think through in a future project, kind of like thinking about these questions of regeneration and kind of like what makes uh, an individual regenerate and, you know, how that works with kind of like adapting ecosystems to environmental change. Well, especially since that's something that we're going to have to do um, as, as climate changes, as, you know, it's, it's not that things won't adapt, but of course we as a society need to adapt 
um, or adapt our expectations to. Um, I know there's been some uh, writing about kind of invasives and how if a species comes on their own, right? If, if they're just moving, are they invasive? Uh, mm -hmm. Should you consider them that or not? So I think your, your study is interesting in trying to think through how we make certain choices of, okay, goats, no, migratory birds, yes. You know, and that would seem so simple, but is it always simple um, to make those kind of judgments? Yeah, and people were absolutely arguing to keep the goats on Guadalupe, saying like, you know, they've been there a long time they've adapted to the island they have become their own kind of like thing um and they're adapted to this arid landscape which is like the kind of thing that we'll see more of in the future and they actually could be a valuable resource for people who are trying to figure out how to kind of like sustain life in places that are being made more arid by climate change but ultimately the kind of like determination in this case was that no, that wasn't what people wanted. Mm -hmm. All right, I have a question from Mehdi. Yes, thank you. I, I was wondering uh, how the discourses of uh, the Mexicans being sometimes considered invaders in the US and now with the Trump building the wall and all that, so how that could somehow interacted with the discourse of invasive species and how to label some as invasive versus the others? Yeah, so I would say um, there has certainly been kind of uh, the discourse around invasive species is often really uncomfortably nativist um, in ways that kind of like these species, like the, the language that people use to talk about invasive species and about people. Um, you know, really draws on one another. Um, you know, from the, the Mexican perspective, I, I, I mean, I think, you know, building, like, there's like one ecosystem on the US-Mexican border. And to think about kind of like trying to separate those things is not at all the way that people, scientists who are thinking about like biosecurity practices think about these things. It's not about like building walls, but instead about kind of like thinking through kind of like, it's, and it's incredibly destructive to like the environment as well to kind of like do those kinds of separations. Um, and I would say like, I found kind of like language about invasive species in Mexico to be pretty nativist as well, to have kind of like similar um, kind of like things about outside invaders threatening um, and they might be coming from the US or from elsewhere, but that is something that was like picked up as well. All right, I think it's time to wrap up then. So thank you very much for coming. This was great to, uh, to hear about your book and also a big thank you to everyone else who came.